from Coimbra to Colombia, from Morocco to Miami. We tell the stories of the people who make the world of international law and business turn. We give glimpses into their lives and provide insights from their experience. These accounts come from every sector and every industry around the globe. Simply put, without further ado, I am Chris Campbell, and you're listening to Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality. Hello and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal. I am your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from around the wide, wide world of international law and dispute resolution. And I'm addressing you for the final time this season. Listen, no tears, all right? It has been a great season full of so many memorable guests, stories, crossovers, and memories. It's hard to believe that this is the third season of the show and that this is the second season that has been totally virtual. Here's hoping that season four will bring back some in-person episodes. For those of you that participated, entry for Arbitration Idol has just wrapped up and we'll be announcing the winners soon. Thanks to all of you who were able to participate. It was a great competition and we beat, crushed, smashed, I would even say. Okay, we beat it by a little bit. Our record from last year. So a big round of applause to all of you and especially to the co-organizers, Amanda Lee over at Careers in Arbitration and Svenja Wachtel at the Digital Coffee Break in Arbitration. Y'all rock. Okay, let's get into it this week. This week's guest is a pioneer and active thought leader in the space of online dispute resolution. Not only that, he has built successful companies at the unique intersection of technology and conflict resolution. I'm speaking, of course, of Colin Rule, the CEO of Resource Internet Solutions, Inc., the home of Mediate.com, and its cousin, Arbitrate.com. Colin has done a number of things across the dispute resolution field, and aside from being a wealth of knowledge on how it has evolved, also provides some interesting insights for those of you looking to specialize in a specific topic related to the field. So, sit back, boot up your note-taking platform of choice, and enjoy my conversation with Colin Rule, and we'll see you on the other side of the show. Hello and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story around the wide, wide world of international law and dispute resolution. Guest, it has been a long road to this point. The end of season three, we are here at our season finale. And we have a very special guest with us today who is will be familiar with a number of topics around technology, with ODR, with all sorts of things that we'll get into in just a moment. But before I tell you about those things, and before he gets into those topics himself, I'd like to welcome to the studio, Colin Rule. Colin, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thanks so much, Chris. Great. And well, Colin, look, we have a lot to cover and not a lot of time to do it. So we'll jump right into it. Who are you? Where are you from? What do the people need to know? I love it. Great first question. Well, my, as you said, my name is Colin Rule. I'm CEO of Mediate.com and Arbitrate.com. Uh, I live in San Jose, California. And uh, my expertise is online dispute resolution, which is really the intersection of conflict resolution, mediation, arbitration, negotiation, and technology. So I'm, I'm delighted to be here with you and uh, excited to be a guest on Tales of the Tribunal. Thank you so much for the invitation. 
Well, that's great. And that's a, that's a good for opening salvo. Um, and before we pick on some of the issues and threads that you just dropped there, let's rewind a little bit. Um, you said San Jose is where you currently are. Is that where you're from originally or where did you grow up? No, uh, great question. I was actually born in New York City. Um, my dad was getting his PhD at NYU, but I moved to Texas when I was three and I grew up in Dallas, Texas. Um, so uh, a proud Texan, although my, my sister who was born in Texas reminds me constantly I'm not a native Texan, which is a big distinction. Um, but then after, uh, after high school, I graduated and went to school in the Northeast in Philadelphia, small Quaker school called Haverford College. Lived there for a while, moved to DC and worked for an organization called the National Institute for Dispute Resolution for a little while. And then I did the Peace Corps in uh, Eritrea, uh, which is a little country on the Red Sea, just north of Ethiopia. And then uh, after that, uh, went to Harvard, the Kennedy School of Government, and got into multi-party environmental dispute resolution. I worked with the Consensus Building Institute in Cambridge, Mass. Then I got a job as general manager of Mediate.com back in 99, and the internet was just, just taking off at that point. So um, uh, I was living in Boston and uh, started a company called Online Resolution, which is one of the first online dispute resolution service providers. And I wrote a book called online dispute resolution for business. And then one day I got a call from, uh, from a senior vice president at eBay. Uh, they were exploding out in Silicon Valley and they said, hey, we need you. And I said, well, I kind of run a company here. I, I can't. And then they said, well, this is how much we're going to pay you. I said, oh, wow, I guess I work for eBay now. So that moved <laughs> me out to Silicon Valley in 2003. I worked for eBay and PayPal, ran all their dispute resolution for about eight years and then um, spun out a company called uh, Modria.com, which was another online dispute resolution service provider that, that uh, used some of the technology we built at eBay. And then I ran Modria for six years, and then we sold that to a company called Tyler Technologies, which is the largest provider of court technology in the United States. And that pretty much takes me to here. I spent three years at Tyler as a vice president, and then um, I left and, and joined as CEO of Mediate and Arbitrate. So there you go, Chris. That's me in a nutshell. <laughs> now, now, see, um, you know, we've been talking a total of like two or three minutes and you have described what it sounds like a, a fascinating decade, multiple decades long career. Oh, and I, we're going to need so nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so and so let, let, let's let's uh, dig deeper into a couple of those points. Sure. Um, sure. So the, the first thing that I would I'm, I'm just curious about is. You know, you have all this experience doing online dispute resolution and you have a, a wealth of things that you've done in that space. Mm -hmm. But how? What was the starting point? What was the, the thing that first got you interested in this topic? Was it some specific event or a class that you took or what started you down this road? You know, that's a really great question. And actually, I was asked to write a chapter in a book that, on personal histories and conflict resolution. So I've done a fair amount of thinking about this. You know, what are the roots of my uh, you know interest in all of this? I will say. Um, in high school, I did debate, which was like competitive arguing. And uh, I, I spent a lot of time hanging around people who were professional arguers, you know, and we all seemed slated to become politicians or lawyers or, you know, there's a lot of jobs where you argue for your job. But I just remember thinking, this is not achieving anything. You know, like I would go into a room and we had a topic and I didn't know if I was going to be pro or con on the topic. It really didn't matter. It was all about how smart could you be in making arguments, you know, to kind of flummox the other side and win. So I got really interested in what's the opposite of that, you know, which how can you actually communicate and reach understanding and reach, you know, change someone's mind. And I was very interested in peace and peacemaking. Um, and I thought that that was a career awaited me sort of in that area. But the more I learned about peacemaking, it's very diffuse. You know, what is peace? You know, it's sort of a philosophical concept. 
but then I went to this small Quaker school and they, they offered a training in mediation. And uh, I was a sophomore in college and it was the uh, Friends Suburban Project, which was a project of the Quaker um, American Friends Services Committee. And I took this training and I was like, aha, that's it. This is, this is the science of peacemaking. This is how you get people to listen to each other and reach agreement. So I learned everything I could about mediation and I wrote my, my thesis on mediation, undergrad thesis, and I actually ran the campus mediation program for a while. And that was why I, when I graduated, I went to Washington DC to work at the National Institute for Dispute Resolution because I decided this is gonna be my thing. Well, that was where I learned about arbitration and I learned about negotiation. I learned about NEDARB, I learned about ombuds. You know, I got to meet all these people who are doing this amazing work. And then I really, I, I looked at all these people and said, I wanna be these people. I wanna be, I wanna be part of this community. These, these, are, these are my folks. So I've been in dispute resolution ever since. That was what I did my graduate work in. And, you know, um, and, and that's really, I'm a nerd too. Uh, you know, I know your podcast guests can't see this looking at me, but I, I'm a classic nerd, you know, total stereotypical. I love computers. You know, I was on the bulletin boards back in the 1980s. You had 300 baud. When the internet happened, I was right there. So there was no intersection really between dispute resolution and technology when I first started doing this. But then the internet started growing and people started to say, well, how are we going to resolve these disputes that arise online between two people, you know, that engage in a transaction? And I said, you know what? I should I should be the guy to figure that out because I love technology and I love dispute resolution. So I was lucky enough to get involved at the earliest stages with the creation of the field of online dispute resolution. And it's been really fun to see that grow over the last 20 years. So I don't know, maybe that, hopefully that's a good enough explanation of how I ended up where I am. But that's, I'm a, I'm a technology nerd and a dispute resolution nerd. And I, I found my passion in the intersection of those two, those two train tracks. Well, sure. And I think that there's an additional track that you may have left off in those those titles that you have, and that's entrepreneur. I mean, you have taken sure. multiple ventures. You've done a number of business things. Um, where did that come from? Was that something that just in you or did that develop or what was that? Where did that come you know, from? that is a bit of a surprise. I must say, when I first got involved with dispute resolution, pretty much all the jobs were in academia. You could be a professor teaching conflict resolution or you could work in a nonprofit or you could work in a government agency. Um, there wasn't really, you know, private ventures that were doing dispute resolution. But um, when I was at Harvard in the late 90s, you know, the Internet was exploding and everyone was talking about, oh, my gosh, this is going to change the world. And the only area of society that could sort of move fast enough, I think, to innovate in, in, in line with all the stuff that was coming down the pike with technology was the private sector. So I did take a couple classes at Harvard Business School in, you know, entrepreneurial management and when I graduated, I, I worked, as I said, for Mediate.com, but then I quickly started my own venture. So then I ended up talking to VCs and talking to advisors, and I got into an incubator in Cambridge that was affiliated with MIT, and I, you know, I learned a lot from that. So it was kind of a kind of a su surprise. I mean, I never I never got a degree or anything in business, but I feel like I kind of got an honorary MBA just over the years, you know, having done this this work for so long. But being out here in Silicon Valley, the other thing that I notice now is when I go to Washington DC or when I go to uh, Geneva and I start talking, all, this, all the technology buzzwords keep popping up, you know? So it's clearly infected me being here in Silicon Valley and working for big tech companies. But, you know, there, there are some downsides definitely to the way tech companies work. You know, they, they move fast and break things, I think as Mark Zuckerberg says. But at the same time, it's also the place where innovation is happening the fastest. And, you know, bad ideas, Hopefully, if it's working right, bad ideas get created and sloughed off and good ideas get created and they flower. So over time, this kind of competition of ideas works pretty well. So, I, yeah, I never thought I would be an entrepreneur, but I guess that's what I am now. I'm on my fourth company. So, yeah, I guess I'm I guess I'm an entrepreneur. 
Well, that, that, that's right. That's right. And I mean, that's the, the hallmark of a successful entrepreneur. They, they will build a business and then <laughs> move on to the next one or on to the next one. Seriously. Well, the irony is also, I think I've started the same company four times. <laughs> the only thing that's yeah. different, different is, you know, the era in which I'm creating it. So people say, oh, you're a serial entrepreneur. I'm like, no, no, I just keep doing the same thing, trying to get it better each time I give it a swing. So, yeah. So, but, uh, but it, it is fun being out here in Silicon Valley. And it's a lot of my friends from eBay and PayPal, they moved on to Google and Amazon and Microsoft and even starting their own companies. So it's really gratifying to see, you know, uh, ideas flower and you create the culture and you bring in good people and it starts to catch fire. So that's, it, it, it's, it's a, it, it's a, it's a very creative process and that's what's very, very, very satisfying about it. Okay. And well, kind of just one more, uh, I guess, uh, point or question before we kind of shift a bit. Um, what do you suppose you might've been doing if you hadn't gone down this road of conflict resolution and um, really sort of focusing there, what do you think you might be doing instead? That's a great question. You're an excellent interviewer, Chris. I like these <laughs> questions. You know, I, I will say, um, you know, I, I doing the Peace Corps in Eritrea, uh, when I came back, um, I had an opportunity to work with the Carter Center in, uh, in Atlanta doing some election monitoring. And a lot of my, my wife and I did the Peace Corps together. And a lot of our friends went in to work for the United Nations or work for um, NGOs or nonprofits. And I, and I look at their paths and I see there's a lot that resonates with me. I mean, it would have been, I still, I, part of my heart is still in Eritrea. It's really sad what's happened in Eritrea, but I have a lot of friends there and connections there. So I, I sort of think international development, you know, that would have been, that would have been, a, that would have been something that could have provided a really satisfying life. But I don't know, I got sucked into this technology thing. Hopefully life is long. I still got a couple decades left. So hopefully I, hopefully I can touch that base too. Sure. No, that, yeah. And I think that, that might have been a, in a parallel universe. There is another version of Colin Rule. That's right. Living That's this exactly right. out. Zaro Colin, who is off in Eritrea, you know, uh, 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 I don't know, digging pipes, uh, burying pipes or something like that. Maybe uh, digging wells. I don't know. That's a possibility. Well, sure. And and, and so, um, you know, kind of turning focus just a little bit um, and, and about one of the things that you've kind of referenced a couple of times is the fact that you were at PayPal um, yeah. in the early days. And... The question I guess I would have just kind of at the outset on that topic is what was it like working for such a new company in such a completely, well, maybe not different field, but um, kind of doing a 180 from what you were doing um, at the company you were running? That's an, another great question. You know, uh, when I started Online Resolution, which was the company I spun out from Mediate.com, I really didn't know much of what I was doing. I mean, I was I knew enough technically to be dangerous. I was sort of writing my own software, running my own servers. Uh, you know, I raised money from friends and family. That was when I was in the Cambridge Incubator. I thought I had an idea of how to run a technology company, but then I got hired and I actually went to eBay first, but eBay and PayPal were the same company at the time. They, eBay had just acquired PayPal, uh, although they've since split apart again. So then I went out to eBay and then you see like, wow, this is a billion dollar tech company op operating at scale. And I realized, boy, I, I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> you know, Like to see real developers and real QA quality assurance people and real user experience designers. I mean, this is all they do and they've studied this and, and they, they're real masters at it. So that was a, a masterclass in sort of figuring out, you know, how do you build and scale a technology platform like that? Um, so I learned a lot. I learned an enormous amount. Um, I, I think I'm still learning, you know, it's, it's not easy to uh, start and build a company like that and make it successful, but, uh, but it's, um, you know, it, it was, it was very interesting. And then when I started Modria, I think a lot of the lessons that I had learned at eBay and PayPal really educated me. So that helped me do it more effectively. So, uh, it, it, it really was an education, um, a, a completely new world, um, from Cambridge coming out to Silicon Valley. 
Well, sure. And I think, you know, part of the reason why I imagine they brought you on was because of the, I guess, the evolving nature, the potential that they saw in the field of ODR. Um, I wonder if you could step back in time to that moment. What was the landscape of ODR? What did it look like back then? Yeah, that's that's another great question. Uh, Ethan Katch is the real father of online dispute resolution. He's a he's an emeritus professor at UMass Amherst, but he was an expert in law and technology, and he was working with a lot of the biggest names in dispute resolution. But he was sort of the technical guy at UMass in the legal studies program, and uh, he wrote a he wrote a book with Janet Rifkin called Online Dispute Resolution. Really named the field and really created the discipline. Now he did a pilot with eBay and said, hey, I think you have a lot of disputes. You know, eBay was growing like crazy year over year. There really was no other e-commerce than eBay at that point in the late 90s. Amazon was only selling books. You know, it was if you wanted to find something on the internet, it wasn't like you could just go to Google and type in toothbrush and find a million toothbrushes for sale. So eBay was really inventing how e-commerce could work, but it was through this auction model. And Ethan reached out and said, hey, why don't we do a pilot? So they put a link on the eBay homepage and uh, they said, hey, if you have a dispute, click this link and it would you know, take you to UMass Amherst where he was running this online ombuds office. And they were just swamped. They were swamped with people complaining because there's so much volume on eBay. I mean, eBay does more volume on a daily basis than the NASDAQ. So when I joined at eBay, they already had more than 100 million users. And by the time I left, 250 million users. So, you know, that was like we were the eighth, we would have been the eighth largest country in the world if you counted those people up as citizens. And now that's a drop in the bucket compared to Facebook has more than a billion users, you know, and Taobao, uh, Amazon, they're huge. So uh, so Ethan started this pilot and it was obvious that there was huge demand there. And I reached out to him from Online Resolution, the company I was running in Cambridge and said, hey, look, maybe we could, you know, tackle this demand together. But he also was approached by another team from Harvard Business School. And they had started a company at the time it was called Transsecure, but eventually they renamed it SquareTrade. And SquareTrade became the ODR provider for eBay. And just they took off. I mean, they'd started resolving. I think they've resolved a couple million disputes, you know, in a fairly short period of time. And eBay realized, wow, this is something we really have to get right, because users are not going to continue to buy their stuff online if when a problem arises, they can't get a fast and fair resolution. It needs to be quick. It needs to be consistent. And, you know, Square Trade was doing that, but they were doing it from the outside. And I think eBay very quickly realized, okay, this is something we need to internalize. We need to hire people and build a team. So that was when they reached out to me because I, I was a competitor to Square Trade. Square Trade said, okay, if you want to buy us, it's going to be $160 million. And eBay was like, no, we're not paying that. We can we can buy Colin for you know a hundredth of that. So they got me and they said, okay, you know, build a resolution process. So we built the resolution center at eBay and then we built it at PayPal. And you know, we end up resolving 60 million disputes per year you know, which is more than the U.S. civil court system and just was growing like crazy. And we only had 25,000 employees, so we had to automate the process as much as possible. So we got to the point where 90 percent of the resolutions that we delivered of the 60 million were just in software, you know. So eBay invested a lot of money in getting the code right to make sure that we could deliver these consistent resolutions that reinforced trust and safety on the website. Because there were some bad guys on eBay, but that was less than a tenth of one percent. Of, was bad guys. Most of the stuff was just misunderstandings. So we needed to build a software engine to help people work out those issues. If you buy an item and it doesn't arrive, or you buy an item and it shows up and it's different than what you thought it was going to be, you, you have to resolve that issue. If you don't resolve it to your satisfaction, we are going to be like, forget eBay, I'm gone. You know, and, and eBay quickly realized, wow, we need to invest a lot of money in this because we can't, if we drive these bad experiences, it's going to be bad for us and bad for our brand over the long term. 
So now, not only eBay and PayPal, they both have resolution centers. They still run that, that same basic process, but so does Airbnb. They have resolution centers for host and guest disputes. So does Lyft for rider passenger disputes. So does Upwork for freelancer contractor disputes. I mean, pretty much any online collaborative sharing economy company, they have some disputes and they have to have a resolution process to work it out. So it was, it was really fun to be at eBay and solving that problem for the first time. And now a lot of the people from eBay, they've spread out to these other organizations and built similar solutions. Well, sure. I mean, I think that's a tantamount or a testament to its uh, success is that they've kind of done what they came to do at eBay and they've gone to evangelize to other parts of the commercial world. I mean, You're that's exactly, exactly right. right huh? Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, I think. Although, you know, everybody has their own spin on how they do it. I mean, Amazon, if you go to Amazon, I have a lot of friends at Amazon and you say, do you have online dispute resolution? They'll go, what's online dispute resolution? Because they don't see that. They don't see it the same way that eBay does. At eBay, we were kind of like Craigslist. We were making connections between buyers and sellers. But at Amazon, they see themselves as the seller. So their dispute resolution is actually customer service. So if you have an issue with, with Amazon, they pretty much just give you your money back or send you a replacement item, no questions asked. Um, so, you know, that's, that's a different way of solving the same problem, you know. Uh, money back guarantee means you don't have to resolve disputes because if anybody has a complaint, they instantly get their money back. So there's no dispute per se. Well, right. And I think that, you know, what you've just said there actually maybe is a good moment to, to take a, a break and a, a breath. Probably a question we should have question we should have started with. Sure. We've talked about it a couple of times on the show um, and we've talked to some experts and we're talking with yourself. What exactly is online dispute resolution to you? Well, you know, it's funny. When I started out, I knew exactly what ODR was. But as we go, we get deeper and deeper, I think it's starting to get a little fuzzier. I mean, at the beginning of the field, when Ethan and I and a couple others were putting this together, we just said online dispute resolution is dispute resolution plus technology, pretty much. It's the use of information and communications technology to help people prevent, manage, and resolve their disputes. So, you know, at, at the beginning of the field, that was enough. That was enough of a definition for people to say, Pretty much anything that an arbitrator does or a mediator does or, uh, you know, two parties do in a negotiation, if you can bring technology in to assist that, that's what ODR is. And at the beginning of ODR, we were just, just trying to imitate face-to-face -face dispute resolution. It's just we were bringing it online. So literally, the model that I was trained uh, in by the Quakers when I was first trained in mediation, my first ODR website just took exactly that process. And it put it into a web page, you know, unassisted storytelling, assisted storytelling, joint problem solving. But what we started to realize was technology opens up really interesting possibilities around how you can resolve a dispute. You know, now we have things like blockchain. We have things like smart contracts. We have things like algorithmic resolutions, artificial intelligence. Those are all things that don't exist offline. So ODR now is starting to create its own techniques for resolving disputes or its own tools for resolving disputes. And parties are now much more comfortable. When I first started doing ODR, there was essentially no ODR for family disputes. We just didn't think it was a good fit. You know, they're so personal, personal, they're so intimate. And the parties, you know, they have interacted face to face their whole relationship. Why would they then go online? Uh, but now online dispute resolution for family disputes is the hottest area. I mean, we see companies cropping up all over the place. Wevorce.com, itsovereasy.com, Bliss Divorce, Hello Divorce. And parties now are very open to the idea of using technology to help them resolve an emotional dispute like a family dispute or a workplace dispute. So the, the culture is changing and the technology tools are becoming more robust. Uh, and I think what, what that's led to is kind of a fragmentation in the definition of ODR. In, in the court context and the legal context, 
oftentimes ODR is thought of as like an online collaborative workspace where parties can come together to work out an agreement mutually. And I think that that is part of it, is, is the facilitative side of ODR, structuring a conversation, structuring a negotiation so that you can get an outcome that's enforceable. But then I think there's another wing of ODR, which is the algorithmic side, which is leveraging the processing power of computers to generate insights. And that's more like machine learning. That's more like smart contracts. Um, and there's a lot of exciting stuff that's happening on the algorithmic side in dispute prevention, you know, which is not facilitative. It's a lot more about using code as law to structure a negotiation. So it's it's interesting. I mean, uh, innovation, I mean, what, somebody at Google is going to invent a baseball cap you can wear and that'll read your mind and then you'll be able to communicate telepathically with everybody else. I don't know. There could be some crazy innovation like that that comes. And when that happens, ODR will embrace it. We'll figure out how to use it to help resolve disputes. What's exciting about ODR is the moving target. And every time there's new technologies or new approaches, that's great. We just kind of absorb it into the field. And I think that makes um, ODR more relevant with each passing year because there's so much innovation that's occurring. Well, sure, yeah, and I think that uh, that that last point that you've made is is exactly what I'd be curious about too. I mean, what are in from what you're hearing, what are some of the current conversations that are being had in the world of ODR? And I guess this, the compound of the extra part of that would be where do you see the field going next? Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting to see what's happened with ODR. You know, I think there's a quote from Gandhi that says, you know, first they ignore you, then they make fun of you, then they argue with you, and then they say, oh, yeah, we always knew you were right. And I've seen that entire process occur with ODR. Uh, you know, I used to go to conferences in the early aughts and talk about ODR, and people looked at me like I was Isaac Asimov, you know, like talking about, oh, science fiction, a thousand years from now, we'll resolve our disputes in the cloud. And people would kind of pat me on the shoulder and say, wow, that was really, that was great, but no, that's not going to happen anytime soon. But then we had the pandemic and suddenly everyone was forced to move everything online. And a lot of arbitrators and a lot of judges who said to me, no, no, this has to happen face to face. They called me up, you know, three weeks into the pandemic saying, now, how do I change my Zoom background? You know, like, how do I, <laughs> so, you know, suddenly minds were changed. And I had a friend say to me, you know, Colin, I think the pandemic has done more in a month to market ODR than you have in 20 years. And I think that's true, I think that's true. Now we're getting kind of to the other side of the pandemic and the question is how much are we gonna go back to, to the way things were before? And I think there will be a bit of a retrenchment because it's not about online or offline. The answer is it's gonna be both. It's gonna be both online and offline. But I do think that 50% of these processes are gonna be handled online moving forward, just out of convenience because now we've proven that it works. And a lot of very senior mediators and arbitrators and arbitration chambers, they put the technology in place to be able to support these online processes. And I think it's the parties, it, you know, really, who are going to say, why do I have to fly to Paris to do this? Why do I have to fly to Dubai for this meeting? Can't we just do this over Zoom? Can't we just do this over GoToMeeting? So, uh, you know, I think, I think in a sense, the seal has been broken and uh, now it's legitimized online practice. But I think video conferencing only it, it's sort of the gateway drug i mean once you start to do video you start to say well how do we share documents how do we you know how do we organize our calendars how do we you know draft uh, agreements how do we we sign things how do we memorialize these agreements and make sure that they're not altered over time you know uh, all of these questions now are becoming more prominent as as international dispute resolution and particularly digitizes so um I, you know i think we have a lot of challenges still left in front of us but if you think about what's coming in terms of technology, like the singularity where 
the power of one computer processor exceeds the power of the human brain. You know, there's some estimates that say that's going to come sometime in the early 2030s, which sounds like a long time from now, but it's actually not. When you know, I'm teaching at um, at law schools out here in the Bay Area, and you know, I, I say to these three L's, I'm like, this is going to happen over the course of your practice. You're going to see quantum computing. You're going to see um, artificial intelligence and machine learning at scale. You're going to see smart contracts. You're going to see the deployment of decentralized justice. So you got to figure out what this all looks like. I mean, you're gonna you're gonna have to invent this future on the fly, and yeah, I think I think they're up to the challenge. Um, you know, if you think about all of the stuff that's happened over the last 20 years, I mean, it's crazy, crazy to think. 20 years ago, we didn't have the iPhone, we didn't have Facebook, we didn't have any of this stuff. It's changed the way the world works, but I think that change is accelerating, and I think the next 20 years is going to be equally, if not more, disruptive. And we have to figure out what that means in arbitration. We have to figure out what that means in the law writ large, because I think the law's done a pretty good job fending off some of this disruption. But now there are cracks in those defenses. And I think the, I think the disruption eventually is going to wash over the, the field globally. Right. And I, I wonder then, you know, both, both for the three L's that will be joining us here in the profession soon enough, but also for those of us that maybe, you know, not maybe, aren't anywhere close to the end of retirement, those of us that are just kind of in the field now. Sure. You're in the what 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 are some of the the the, the skill sets um, or familiarities that you think that if you're just a lawyer and practicing going to be practicing another 10 20 plus years should start to try and pick up now yeah you know it's interesting one of the concepts we have in online dispute resolution is something called the fourth party and the fourth party is a way of thinking about technology as a participant in the process so party 1 and party 2 are the disputants maybe the litigants um, party three is the human neutral. So that could be a mediator, could be an arbitrator, could be an ombudsperson, could be a conflict coach. And then technology is the fourth party. Now, a lot of, when I go speak to bar associations or you know arbitration tribunals, people often say, oh, I'm worried technology is going to take my job away. When are we going to have the digital arbitrators come in and resolve all the cases? And you know, I say to them, it's going to be a long time before we get there. And I don't even know if that's the direction things are headed in. But I do think there's stuff we have to ask technology to do today. The fourth party, we say, hey, can you manage all our documents and send out reminders and you know, run our video conferencing, take minutes in our, in, our, in our sessions. And technology does all that very, very effectively. But I think the question is, what are we going to ask technology to do tomorrow? What's the fourth party going to be able to do? Is it going to be able to educate us about our zone of potential agreement? Is it going to be able to talk about our batness? Is it going to be able to do case research? and go out and read 10 million similar cases in 16 different languages and come back to us and say, well, based on the research I did, this is probably the kind of resolution you're gonna end up with, or here are some creative solutions. We might even say to agents, software-based agents, here's all the information about my case, go, go find me a resolution. And then the agents will negotiate against each other and come back to us and say, hey, this is a resolution I got. You know, I don't think that we're gonna be putting a case in front of one AI, you know, machine learning algorithm to decide a case, we may be putting it in front of a thousand, you know, and we'll be able to do that at scale. And, and all of those different AIs will be created from different data sets by different organizations. Um, and then when we reach an agreement, instead of it being enforced by the coercive power of the state, I think we're going to write smart contracts, which are really digital contracts, and we'll e-sign them. There'll be little pieces of code that we can put into the blockchain so that they can't be altered, and they'll be self-enforcing. So, you know, again, if you think about Lex Mercatoria, you know, the underlying logic behind international arbitration, it's a stateless form of, of redress. 
And I think that that's going to become more and more important as the internet expands, because the internet doesn't really care about geographic boundaries. You know, jurisdiction, a legal system based on national jurisdiction is a legal system that's going to inevitably become more out of sync with society as the internet spreads, because the internet is so cross-jurisdictional. So I think we're going to see more institutions put into play. And there are definitely going to be jobs that are eliminated. I mean, if you look at finance, there used to be a lot of people that stood on the floor of the stock exchange and held up pieces of paper and said, who wants to buy 10,000 shares of IBM? All those jobs are gone all around the world. The floors of all the stock exchanges are quiet. They're filled with servers, silently buzzing away and doing the same thing in milliseconds. But we have more jobs in finance than ever before, because now we have to write the code that's going to run those servers. And that's what's going to happen to the law. We're going to see fewer people on the floor of courtrooms. I mean, still, in a billion dollar litigation, sure, people will fly around the world, you'll get your face-to-face -face trial, you'll get your, your panel of judges. But for the vast majority of cases, cross-border cases, you know, uh, you know, I think it's gonna start with a lower dollar value case, it's gonna work its way up the value chain. But we're gonna see more and more technology used to resolve those cases. And it's not gonna be the lawyers that lead the change, it's gonna be the clients, it's gonna be the general counsels who demand the efficiency of these redress processes. And that's that's essentially what's gonna force, I think, the judiciary and international arbitration to change its ways. That's my sense of where things are headed. And do you have any concerns about that rise in technology? I mean, just generally? I mean, and how it might impact the legal world? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Man, it's not that hard to come up with a lot of dystopian scenarios about people building electronic kangaroo courts at scale and obfuscating its operation, you know, to sort of put their thumb on the outcomes. Uh, you know, I mean, the ideal we have of the blindfolded woman holding the scales of justice, when you see the privatization of that and you see its fragmentation and private entities around the world building their own redress processes, well, there's good reason for concern. Now, that's one of the reasons why we created this organization, ICODER, the International Council for Online Dispute Resolution, because we're insisting as part of ICODER on the deployment of certain ethical principles and ethical standards for how ODR systems operate. So we want there to be a degree of transparency. We want there to be external auditing. We want it to ensure these systems are impartial and they do treat uh, the parties neutrally you know, and fairly in their transactions, that they're easily accessible, that they're secure, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I mean, iCoder is all about trying to mobilize the field to keep out bad actors and identify um, people who, who may be building these kind of electronic kangaroo courts so that we can uh, you know, either get them to change their ways or shut them down. Um, but it's going to be a challenge. It's definitely going to be a challenge. Just like the internet, I think we're in a bit of a Wild West period now where all the rules have been scattered and we don't know what the new rules are. I do think eventually we're going to figure out how to marshal the power of the internet and you know uh, make it work in service of our shared values, shared civic and social values around the world. But um, you know that's going to happen in the justice system. Um, we have a system that operates. Everybody sort of knows how it works. It has certain procedural protections. It's not perfect. But, you know, there's a lot of wisdom that was built into that system over hundreds of years. The Internet's going to disrupt that. And then we got to figure out, OK, well, now that it's disrupted, what's next? And, you know, my objective is for all of us to work together, dispute resolvers, lawyers, judges, arbitrators, um, dispute resolution institutions, come together and design a better system that, that we think through all of these complexities and concerns and find ways to address them. You know, 50 percent of people in the world don't have access to fast and fair redress. You know, I learned that in Eritrea. Um, and if we could build a system powered by technology that gets access to that 50% of people, that's a huge step forward. Um, we also know 
that there are um, terrible outcomes for people of color, like in the United States justice system, it's 30% worse outcomes for people of color, and that's been demonstrated over decades. Well, maybe if we're building a new system from scratch and we're using technology, let's figure out why that's the case, and let's let's build a better system that doesn't have those flaws. So I think we have to we have to compare not the new system we're building against the ideal of the current system. I think we have to compare it against the reality of the current system, and there are plenty of things that we can improve. So this, this to me is a big opportunity for us to design something better. Um, so I'm excited by that. Yeah, I, I would agree. You know, and there was this conversation, um, especially on that last point that you've made about how we can, this access to justice, this, these concepts of rule of law, yeah. all of those types of things, and even applied to, to, to racial justice, um, a conversation that's been going on a lot in the United States. And the issue sort of becomes, where there's this presumption that because it's technology or because it's a machine or because it's online, that it's neutral, that's as neutral as neutral can get. Right. But it forgets that there were non-neutral parties that created the technology in the first place. And that's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, that's the root this, of the problem. Yeah, this kerfuffle in the United States about critical race theory, I mean, people keep misdefining what critical race theory is. But uh, you know, as I said, ODR came out of UMass Amherst and I taught at UMass Amherst for a while in the legal studies program. Richard Delgado is one of the leading scholars around critical race theory in, in the legal sector. You know, what he's saying is that white supremacy has been built into these institutions from inception. I mean, it is, it is inseparable from the design that happened when these systems were put together. Well, now we're building a new system. I mean, one of the things I saw at eBay that was very interesting is, um, you know, you don't know anything about your transaction partner at eBay other than their transaction history and their username. You don't know if they're if they speak with an accent. You don't know if they're a man or a woman. You don't know if they're 80 or if they're 20. All you know is their history and how they've performed with you. So the information that's exchanged on eBay between users is decided by the users. And what we found, I mean, there was a big group of users at eBay called DUA, the Disabled Online Users Association. Some of these folks, you know, they, you know, they had. There was a guy named Uncle Joe I was very good friends with. He had congestive heart failure, so he rode around on a cart. This guy built a $10 million tie-dye business on eBay. And I said to Uncle Joe, I said, this is amazing, you know, this is amazing that you built this business. He said, you know, I couldn't get a job at McDonald's flipping fries. They would never give me that job because they'd look at me and they, they'd say, uh, we don't want to get into this. I don't know this guy's, is he going to be able to do the job? But the fact is, on eBay, I can run this business. I sell great product. My customers love me. And I, I, I turn more than $10 million a year in business selling this tie-dye. And he said, that's what technology opened for me. Now, I'm not advocating that anonymizing everybody in the world is a solution to racism, because it certainly isn't, especially now that we're integrating all of this you know, video stuff back into the process. But we do know about implicit bias. There's so much work that's been done. And in the, in the judiciary, we like to think that we can be rational, that these judges sitting up there in their robes with their gavels they're, they're going to be able to neutrally consider the law and apply it in an unbiased way. And I think the data has shown that that is not the case, that there is a lot of, of bias that makes its way into the courts, even if it's not necessarily written into the law. So I'm, I'm optimistic that we can use technology to build a better system that can combat some of these issues. I, I don't want to be Pollyanna-ish about it. I think that it's going to take a long time. But, you know, they, we say, I think it was King that said that the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. And the fact is, we've learned a lot since the judicial systems were first designed. So maybe we can utilize these tools and build a better system. That, that's all. And I want to do it all together. I want all of us to come together collaboratively and try these things and refine them over time so they achieve the objectives that we have. So, I, you know, I don't think that technology is a panacea. It doesn't make people neutral. 
I think you can design biased technology just like you can design unbiased. Technology is just a tool. But if we do it right and we think through things, I think we can build a better system that will better achieve the objectives that we've named for ourselves in these systems. Well, I, I think that that's incredibly insightful. Um, and, and I guess it comes from a place of having a, a deep understanding of how these systems can work and how the technology works. And since we've kind of been talking in reference to the United States, I guess just the kind of final point that I would say on this topic would be I, I wonder how we can use this as a means of repairing the national ethos that is the United States, where you kind of just have this fundamental two Americas. Um, you know, right. they haven't come to blows yet, and hopefully they never do. But I, I wonder if that could be, you know, maybe even pulling from the peacemaking conversations that you're having at the beginning of our talk today as a means to sort of bring the two sides back together to at least have some common shared definition of reality and what's possible. Well, I do think the United States finds itself at a very difficult juncture. Um, but I, I have to say, I remain an optimist on the global basis for humanity. I mean, if you think about what we've achieved over the last 50, 50, 75 years, we've created a middle class in, I mean, we, royal we, we, humanity as a whole, we've created a middle class in China and India. We've brought enormous numbers of people out of poverty. I think technology, you know, one of the things I found at eBay was very interesting. When I first got there, they only had, I don't know, 75,000 disputes a year. And one of the things that I did was I put a link on the homepage that said, if you have a dispute, click here. And then the, the volume of disputes went up 10x, you know? We immediately went to 300, 400,000. And I remember my VP brought me in and the guy that hired me and said, what did you do? Why did you create all these disputes? And I said, I said, Rob, I didn't create any disputes. These disputes were out there. We just didn't know because you didn't make it easy. eBay didn't make it easy for people to tell us about these disputes. So now we know, and that's a good thing that we know. And that's what almost what I think has happened with the internet. I think before there was a faux sense of, oh yeah, there's a social harmony out there. Everybody's happy because we only had three news networks and they only reported, you know, whatever they, whatever news they came across, you know, in the course of their lives. And they were all three in New York City. Well, then the internet came and you know what? Everybody can walk around with a phone and they can record everybody's a broadcaster. And suddenly all of these voices that have been kept silent for years and years and years, they had the ability to get a megaphone and find other people that were sympathetic to them too. So I feel like, did the internet create all of this, this you know, misunderstanding and this anger? Well, to a certain extent, yes, because it gave a voice to that anger. But I think that, again, I remain an optimist. And the ability for me to pull out a phone and be able to communicate with anyone in the world with a couple swipes of my fingers, I think that's a good thing. I think that's going to eventually lead to more understanding. It's gonna to lead to less ignorance and less, you know, um, jingoism and nativism and nationalism and all those dynamics that I think have been so corrosive throughout human history. So I, I, I don't mean to wax too poetic on, on this podcast with you here, Chris. I, you know, it's going to take a long time and we certainly are in a dark place now. But I think this is cert, cert, kind of, I mean, this is the way I feel about racism in the United States. And I don't want to make this too much about the United States. This was a boil. This was a sickness in our country. And it was being kind of ignored. And I think what the internet did was it lanced the boil. And that's painful and it's hurtful, but it's really the only thing that you can do to try and address it is to, and I think it's a good thing that we're having these conversations, even though they're hard conversations, because I really do believe race, racism is the founding sin of the United States. And I think we can confront it and I think we can try and build a better, more just country and world, but we have to confront these things and what, that's what the internet is forcing us to do. So hopefully on the other side of lancing this boil, we're gonna get to a better place, but a more just, 
more more trusting, more empathetic place. But you know, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see if my optimism is 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 well founded because it's a it's certainly a bumpy time right now, and there there uh, we've got Scylla and Charybdis on each side. We've got to navigate the center path. So. Well, I think that's well said, and you know, we won't uh, go too too further off the the beaten path for our time today. But I will conclude uh, that point by saying. I think you're right. I think whether it's um, a business negotiation, um, you know, a personal relationship or trying to deal with a whole segment of a population, I don't think that you can move the conversation forward in a meaningful and positive way until you at least acknowledge the issue and make some amends for that. And I think I that agree. that has been the tension point that uh, we've continued to see. And I think until that is done and we're seeing the trend towards that these days, um, it's difficult to make any sort of meaningful progress or lasting peace. I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Um, well, well, listen, look, uh, you know, we're careening towards the end of our time together. There is one more topic I want to ask you about before we shift. Sure. Um, tell us, tell us about Mediate.com, and I would assume it's cousin Arbitrate.com. <laughs> yeah, younger cousin, maybe nephew still at this point, but you know, Arbitrate's growing all the time. Yeah, so Mediate.com is the number one mediation website in the world. Uh, it was founded in 1996, so we just celebrated our 25th anniversary. Um, it's got, you know, thousands upon thousands of articles and interviews and um, uh, resources about the mediation field. It really, I, I almost feel like it is, it's the museum of mediation as well as, you know, the, the center of excellence for current practice. Because, you know, we, we lost a lot of the leaders in the dispute resolution field, but they were very active in mediate all along the way. So we've got many, many hundreds of interviews and we host, we host, um, monthly meetings with mediators, talking about practice, best practices. We talk about online dispute resolution. We host conferences. So uh, we also have a directory of mediators around the world. We have the largest um, uh, list of, of me international mediators anywhere. So um, it, it Mediate really is, it's, it's sort of like the home of dispute resolution, of mediation on the web. Now, Mediate long owned arbitrate.com. And there were some people, mediators, who you know consider themselves both mediators and arbitrators. So we sort of developed Arbitrate.com a little bit with those with those individuals. But when I got in, I said, no, no, we need to take Arbitrate to the next level. So now we've created a much more robust Arbitrate.com. We've started to build resources there. We've got a, a weekly newsletter. We've got interviews. We've got um, uh, again weekly events, monthly events. So uh, Arbitrate's very quickly. Uh, growing. Uh, it's only been around for a, a fraction of the time the Mediate's been around, but uh, we're trying to make it the center of excellence for the future in arbitration and thinking about where arbitration is going and being open to diversifying the field again and, and inter introducing new tools. Um, so it's it's fun. It's fun. I mean, it's great to be at the nexus of mediation and arbitration on the web and sort of trying to push practice and just talk with smart people all the time. So it's it's a really fun place to be. Well, sure. And I, I can only assume that uh, the next venue for, for both of these websites is for you guys to launch a, a TikTok account. <laughs> hey, I, I'm not, not too proud to say we haven't talked a lot about that, Chris, because a lot of energy is on TikTok. But yeah, we, you got to be on Facebook. You got to be on LinkedIn. You got to be on Twitter. I mean, that's just the pulse of life on the Internet. So we, we really are trying to make the case to the world that there are better ways to resolve your disputes and, and try and spread the word, um, not only to provide you know, cutting edge practical information for people that are doing this work every day, but also for people that are just learning about it for the first time. How does this work? How can this benefit me? How do I find somebody to help me out? Um, but we're really focused now on writing software. As I said, you know, we're, we have a program called Caseload Manager. 
that's run, you know, more than 100 organizations around the world use Caseload Manager to manage their arbitration, ombuds, and mediation volumes. We're adding new features to that. Uh, we're building new ODR tools. We're building new uh, solution explorer type tools. We're looking at blockchain. So it's 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 a really fun place to be because I think technology is going to become more and more important to dispute resolution worldwide. Yeah, sure. No, and I think that, that that's, again, well said and um, well contemplated. Well, listen, there's one final question that I have for you um, before we kind of uh, change paces, change gears sure. a little bit. Um, what is a legal or dispute resolution-based technology that doesn't currently exist, but you wish did, or something along those lines? Hmm, hmm. That's a great question. You know, I, I'm, I, I have long wanted to build um, sort of, uh, and uh, people say it's a digital judge, but it's not really a digital judge. I would say it'd be like a digital conflict coach. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a descendant of Oliver Wendell Holmes, you know, a former Supreme Court justice in the United States. And I've always wanted to call it Oliver. And I wanted there to be a website where somebody could come to Oliver and say, just explain their problem verbally. And it would be translated into text. Oliver would break it apart, do research around the world, look at all of the relevant case law, look at all the advice and come back and say, this is what you need to do. This is the path for you. This is the path to resolution. This is probably what your case is going to look like. This is who you need to call. Here's a letter you need to write. I love. I would love for there to be a, an online AI-based assistant that could diagnose and help resolve disputes in every language around the world. So that's what I want to build one one day before I die, Chris. I want to build Oliver the AI. I mean, that sounds like a, a much more advanced and a much better version of Ask Jeeves, no? Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> I love it. Maybe we need a little cartoon of, you know, Oliver Wendell Holmes with a little towel over his arm like Jeeves, you know, hey, what can yeah. I do for you? But, uh, you know, it is a little bit like a, con a conflict concierge, perhaps, you know, somebody who just solves all your issues. But I, I do I do think that that's I would love to see that happen before I kick the bucket. You know, I, I often joke there's going to be a Zuckerberg in legal tech. There's going to be a Zuckerberg who makes a billion, you know, 10 billion, 50 billion dollars doing this. But the problem is they may be in third grade in Bangalore right now. Uh, we have no idea how long it's going to take or what innovation is going to be the breakthrough. So I thought it might be me for a while, but I got, you know, you can, I got some gray hair now, Chris. So it's, I doubt it's going to be me. It's going to be somebody else. But I'm looking forward to that happening. Well, sure. I mean, um, you know, one of the things that we talked about uh, just a few minutes ago was this idea that the legal field is just so conservative. And as a result, you have so many opportunities that just go untouched and unturned and unrealized. Totally. Um, and and whoever figures out how to break that dam is going to make Zuckerberg or maybe more money. <laughs> well, that's I, that's the way, you know, Clayton Christensen was a professor at uh, Harvard Business School, and he talked about these disruptive innovations. And he said, you know, look, that's the perfect field to disrupt, a, fail, a field that's um, complacent, you know, it's pale, stale, and male. You know, they just want to run things the way that they want to run things, and they don't want any to disrupt it. Well, then you, you don't go in and try and change that from the inside. You build a new system. You build a new system that's better, and then eventually people say, hey, wait, this is better, and that is a disruptive innovation. So that's somebody's going to figure out how to do that, and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to seeing when that happens. Yeah. Well, that's fair enough. Okay, we're going to leave the world of technology, um, at least in the substantive sense, behind for a moment. Um, sure, sure. And a uh, question I'd like to, to start this sort of segment about is um, – over the course of your career, and you've had an opportunity to do a number of things, um, what have been some of the guiding forces or role models or um, influences um, on your career? Can, anything that sticks out to you? 
Well, guiding forces, I mean, it's interesting. I mentioned debate before, my old debate coach, uh, Alex Pritchard, he was a real uh, influence on me just in the way that I see the world. But uh, there was a guy named John Healy who was really the earliest um, innovator in technology and dispute resolution. He was just a real passionate guy about mediation. And he gave me my first job at mediate.com. And I, I really see him as a mentor. You know, I ask myself, not, not infrequently, you know, what would John Healy do in this situation? Um, but uh, so John Healy, and there was another guy, Tom Fee, who I worked with at the National Institute for Dispute Resolution. I remember asking Tom, you know, do I have to be a lawyer to do this work? And he said, no, not anymore. It used to be you had to be a lawyer to do this work, but we knocked those doors down. So now you can do whatever you want. So that was why I went and got a degree in, uh, in um, uh, public policy. So, you know, they, they, really, uh, they really got me thinking about the potential of all of this. And I think, you know, that, that's what's exciting to me as I get older now is the power for a mentor to plant the seed in the mind of a young person and say, you know, look, this could be cool if we could ever do something like this. And then that young person says, you know what, I'm going to be the one to do that. So that's what I'm spending my time now trying to pay it forward a little bit. You know, I sort of feel like I got handed the, the torch for a couple of years. I'm going to do the best I can while my hand's on the tiller, and then I'm going to have to hand it to somebody else and they'll take it from here. So hopefully they'll, they'll think that I move things in the right direction. There's never, never straight lines in the way these things evolve, but you know, I do think, I do feel like long-term, um, I, I've always said, don't try and impress your peers with your work. Try, try to impress your heroes. And I think the people that got me into the field that I'm really inspired by, people like Frank Sander and Roger Fisher and, you know, the people who really created this field, I think they'd be proud of what it's turned into. And I'm looking forward to seeing what the next generation does as well. And I, I plan to be proud of that, that work too. Sure. No, um, that, that, that's a beautiful answer. I think that's a, that's a good one. Um, here are some rapid fire or faster succession type of questions. Um, what are you reading right now? What kind of books are on your bookshelf? You know, I actually, uh, I have been reading uh, rock biographies lately. I don't know how I got into this. I, I think I saw online somebody uh, gave a great review of a book about a band uh, from the 80s called The Replacements called Trouble Boys. And I read that and I really loved it. So now I'm reading Bruce Springsteen's uh, biography called my life and then uh and oh no that's that's a keith richard biography but I've, i'm reading the bruce springsteen biography too it's really i don't know I, i'm it's interesting reading about these people that i idolized when i was young and sort of hearing their journeys uh so i'm finding that's inspirational but i'm also working on uh, mailer's executioner's song which is a book i've always wanted to get through um and enjoying that but it's 1400 pages so i I dip out and just go to my rock biographies occasionally, but that's what I'm currently reading. Sure, and well, and I think by the, the answer to that question, that might uh, also give me an indication on the next one. Uh, what kind of music are you into? What kind of artist uh, do you like? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I When I was young, I always said, I want to stay current with music because I want my kids to think I'm cool. But, uh, and my younger son is really into electronic music and he's constantly feeding me new songs and you know, some of them are better than others. But I think I have my thousand songs, you know, that I really love, and I just find myself living yeah. in the past a little bit. So that's that's okay. But I'm, I, I have a very omnivorous taste. I'm pretty much into any form of music other than country music. I, I don't know. Growing up in Texas, I, I kind whoa, of whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, hey, all right. I, I did go to high school with the Dixie Chicks, so I do like the Dixie Chicks. But aside oh. from that, I don't have a lot of Conway Twitty in my playlist. But aside from that, I'm, I'm all over the place. I listen to everything. Well, uh, Darius Rucker is, uh, is from the great state of South Carolina and went to right. USC. And so that's, uh, I was you know, a these are, are very close times. I was a Hootie fan, but I don't know. The later Darius Rucker, I haven't really gotten into. Maybe maybe I'll go give it a try, Chris, on your recommendation. Hey, that's, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. Um, let's see. 
How about if you were approached by a current student, a recent graduate, or someone that's looking to break into the technological legal space? Sure. Uh, what advice would you give them? Well, there are a lot more opportunities now than there used to be. Um, you know, there's a lot of working groups. I, I'm really excited about websites like Claros.io, which is, um, I think uh, Federico is based in Argentina, but it's really international movement. And uh, Jur.io run by Alessandro, I think he's in Italy. Um, you know, there's a lot of organizations that are kind of looking at, particularly looking at cryptocurrency and, and looking at these kind of decentralized structures. And they're always looking for people to come and get involved. So I think to go learn about blockchain technology, learn about smart contracts, learn about what some of these companies are doing in decentralized justice, I think it's a great investment of time and energy. And there's, there's, you know, we do periodic calls to sort of talk about the latest and greatest in those areas. So I think that would be a great investment if I was young and I, and I wanted to get into this field is go meet some of those people, attend some of those conferences, learn about those technologies, because I, I do think in that fuzzy area is the gem of an idea that's going to transform the world. So that's where I would go. So it almost sounds, I'm in California, so we do a lot of talking about, you know, the gold rush. Like there's a, there's a gold ingot out there somewhere in the hills. You just got to dig through a lot of dirt to find it. So I think that's what people are in the process of doing in that space. So uh, go west, young man. That's what I would say. Go west. Go digitally west. Go digit into the new, into the unknown. Go see if you can find a, a an undiscovered opal or sapphire somewhere. Somewhere there. I think I think they're out there. Uh, sure. No. I, again, um, th th that's thoughtful, and I think that's what that's well said. Um, we're getting down to the last couple of questions we've got here, Colin. Um, sure. The 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 one of the last questions I have for you is, you know, during COVID, one of the things that we learned, um, and perhaps we always knew it, but just became really important or pivotal, was that maintaining your physical and mental health is critically important, especially when you're on the clock 24 hours. Mm -hmm. It's true. Um, what are some of the ways that you do that for yourself that you balance those kinds of things? Well, it's interesting. You know, I've, I've spent a lot of time in the house. Uh, my wife and I work right down the hallway from each other. And one of the things I've realized is it's not good to be in the same room all the time. So we, we spend a lot of time out in nature. I, every day I go for a run. We go for a swim, go for a bike. We've got a dog that keeps us, uh, keeps us active. So I, I think uh, sometimes there's a temptation, especially when you're on video all day, to only think about yourself as shoulders up, like your intellect is your whole life. But uh, I think I think the medical science has shown there's a clear connection between the shoulders down and how well your brain functions. So just getting out there and getting some dirt under your fingernails and, you know, getting some clear mountain air in your lungs. I, I really think it's that's an important thing, an important thing to prioritize. So uh, that's something I try and do every day. I want I want to sweat at least 30 minutes a day and I don't care how I do it. So that, that's that's one of the pieces of advice that has served me well in my life. So. Oh, well, and maybe that leads into uh, the, this next question. Let's say that it's, it's five o'clock on a Friday that you don't have any pending work things. No one's got you uh, on a call or meeting upcoming. You do whatever you'd like. And it's no longer COVID. How are you going to spend your ideal weekend? Ooh, wow. That's that's an interesting one. Well, I will say um, I'm a little obsessed with building a cabin. Um, so, uh, I've been looking at pieces of land and, uh, and looking at designs and I want to build it myself, you know, and go, you know, uh, get the lumber myself and lay the rocks myself. And, uh, and I want to plant a garden, particularly an orchard. I want to have trees and things like that. So that's sort of my next, my next dream. I don't know. Maybe that's what I'll do in retirement, Chris, is go up and. Well, don't buy the lumber there. right now. 
No, 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 no. That's it. Don't buy it. That's why you gotta you gotta cut the tree and cut it yourself. Yeah, I think a two by four is like seventy five bucks now. So no, no, now is not the yeah. time. But uh, but no, I I'm 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 excited about that. I think uh, John Healy, I mentioned before, my mentor. Uh, when he reached retirement, he moved up to really rural Northern California, and he just he just loves nature. Every time I go up there, he's like, "Let me show you this beautiful cove that I found," you know. So maybe that's where I'm headed eventually. It's just sort of commune with the birds. I actually got a hummingbird feeder in my backyard, and I, and I, I would have laughed. Sixteen year old me would have thought this was ridiculous, but I'm unhealthily obsessed with all of the hummingbirds that come by the feeder all day, and I, I just sit out there and watch them. That's more interesting than TV. So I think I'm I, I must be. Re- approaching my retiring years, Chris, if that's the kind of thing that that uh, that my mind goes to in, in moments of daydreaming. Well, no, sure. I mean, I think that shoot, uh, hummingbird politics sounds interesting to me, man. That oh, could be God. a lot of stuff. I, I, don't get me started. That's another hour. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, well, listen, Colin, um, before we get out of here, do you have any shout outs that you want to give any tips to the cap? Well, so many great people doing great work. I will say to my Arbitrate team, to to Indraneal, to Amy Schmitz, to to Josh and to Angie, you know, thank you for all the great work that you're doing. And uh, um, uh, to the wider ArbitrateMedia.com communities, keep up the great work, uh, keep the faith, even in dark times like we're in right now. I, I think the work that we do is more important than ever. And I think eventually um, we're going to get back to trying to build empathy, build connection, build understanding. So. Um, and I'll also say to uh, to Wendy Gonzalez and Sophie Knappert and the, the the team at ArbTech and CyberArb, keep up the great work. I really think that that work is essential for the future of the field. So there's a couple shout outs of that, Chris. Oh, that, no, that, that's fantastic. Well, I will uh, also tip my cap both to uh, to Sophie and Wendy, both good friends and good friends of the show. Sure. And and I will throw an extra shout out in there uh, to the, the gentleman that introduced the two of us, uh, Mike McElrath. Absolutely. Um, who I understand you did a podcast episode with. Um, we'll have to see if we can find that and link that in the show notes. Umpteen years ago, yeah, probably maybe a decade ago at this point. But yeah, Mike's Mike's a great friend and just a true Renaissance uh, Renaissance man. Um, I remember when I was at his house in Florence, he introduced me to his son, and I told his son about a video game that my son was obsessed with called Dota. And I said, be careful, it's very addictive. And now I understand that his son is totally addicted to this video game too. So I feel kind of bad that I got it, you know, <laughs> that I introduced him to this, but. No, Mike's a great guy and a, and a good friend and a forward thinker in arbitration. So if we, if I could make him king of international arbitration, make all the decisions about where it's going, I, I probably would. <laughs> and I know that last bit is going to make him blush. And what a perfect way to end season three. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, well, listen, um, Colin, as happens, as has happened every episode that we've had, um, the time just goes by far too quickly. Um, Look, it was a great conversation. We really appreciate you, and thank you for coming by the Digital Studio. Thank you so much. I had a wonderful time, Chris. You're a great interviewer, so um, I, I really had a, had a, uh, an excellent time chatting with you. Hopefully, we'll get another chance. Yeah, I look forward to that. Well, uh, Colin, you want to sign us off? Absolutely. I am Colin Rule, and there's no disputing it. You're listening to the Tales of the Tribunal. Thank you, and we will see y'all next season. So, there you have it. Season three is in the books. And what a conversation to end it on, right? When you think about all the ways that technology and the internet have integrated with the legal profession, it's exciting to see where it could be headed next. And indeed, who is the next Mark Zuckerberg of legal tech? Hmm, we'll have to have Colin back to ask him about that. Team TOT, 
Before we get out of here for the season, I want to express a deep and heartfelt thank you to each and every one of you listening. It's been so humbling to look back at the end of each season to see how much our community has grown, how we went from just a few hundred downloads to nearly 15,000. I appreciate all of the time and attention you've given the program. As with every break, TOT will be off for a few months while we conduct more interviews, well, and recharge a bit. But Disputes Digest will return in September. We'll also be recruiting research assistants to help with the next season of the show. So if you or someone you know might be interested, drop us a line at talesofthetribunal at gmail.com and we'll talk about it in the offseason. Anyway, that's it for now. And for the last time this season, if you enjoy the show, please like and follow us on LinkedIn or head over to the website. And it means the absolute world to me when you leave us a review on your podcasting platform of choice. I promise not to beg you about it again on TOT, at least until next season. Tales of the Tribunal is produced by MoBetta Solutions, and show music is by Joshua and Javen Campbell. Show interns are Matthew Cawthorn and Rama Tulahi Jallo. Feedback and comments for the show can be sent to talesofthetribunal at gmail.com. Team TOT, that's it for this season. Thank you for tuning in, and until next time, there's no disputing it. You're listening to Tales of the Tribunal. None of the views shared on today or any episode of Tales of the Tribunal is presented as legal advice nor advice of any kind. No compensation was provided to any person or party for their appearance on the show, nor do any of the statements made represent any particular organization, legal position, or viewpoint. All interviewees appear on an arm's length basis, and their appearances should not be construed as any bias or preferred affiliation with the host or host's employer. All rights reserved.